All right, man. Such a great morning. Man, I, I, I'm so excited. If you got your Bibles, uh, turn me to 2 Kings chapter 4. Uh, that's where we're going to be in the Come and Listen series. Uh, I lo- we, we've talked about this a lot, but we really love this series, just the, the way that God moves and just reveals himself in Scripture in such a powerful way. If you weren't with us last week and you haven't been around for the Come and Listen series, I'll kind of give you an idea. We've been doing it since uh, 2014, and we've, uh, we, we've covered the, like this entire uh, narrative arc of Scripture all the way up to where we are right now, 2 Kings chapter 4. And the idea is that we would dig in to these individual stories of God's faithfulness and, and giving us the, the idea and um, giving us the truth that we can trust him, but then zooming out ultimately uh, to see that every page whispers his name, as the Jesus, book, uh, Jesus Storybook Bible says. Uh, that the redemptive plan that was in place before time is threaded all through Scripture. That there's one theme in Scripture, and there's one event, and there's one person that it leads to. And it's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's, it's the, the, the journey of God inviting the rebels back home and making a way for that to happen. And man, this story is no different as we, li- we dig into uh, 2 Kings chapter 4. Um, you know, I was... Uh, a couple weeks ago, I went, I went to the doctor. Not that you care, um, but uh, it, it's it, that's kind of a, a big thing for me because I haven't been to the doctor for a while, um, and this is kind of a vulnerable moment for me. But um, the you know, and people have just told me, you know, you haven't been to the doctor in about twelve years. You should probably go. And I'm like, I don't. I feel fine. Like you know, I'm just walking around. I feel fine. They're like, you're 48. You're probably not. Um, so you need to get your oil checked, Derek. Go go into the doctor. Uh, and so. I started getting anxious about it, and one of the reasons is for a season of my life in my mid-30s, had some of you know, went through a lot of some medical issues, some things that were really difficult for me and my family, and I was at the doctor, you know, almost every week, sometimes twice a week, for a pretty good season of my life, so when I got on the other side of that, it was like, all right, see ya, I'm not going, I didn't want to smell a doctor's office, I didn't want to be near a doctor's office, and I haven't been back since a couple weeks ago. Uh, and some of the people in the medical field are like, oh my goodness, he is dying right now. I know, I just want to check him out. Um, but I, I was anxious uh, g- going into the doctor. And why do we get anxious going into the doctor? I mean, for me, I went in there, and even the smallest things, like the girl that came in, poor, poor girl, she's looking at me and she's taking my blood pressure. And she's just kind of monotone, you know, just kind of looking at me and taking my blood pressure. I'm like, Ooh. What is it? I mean, she wouldn't tell me. She goes, it's fine, it's fine. And then she told me the numbers, and they were all right. And the doctor came in, and he looked at me and said, hey, I've been to the doctor in a while. I was kind of embarrassed. Yeah, it's been about 12 years. Um, And he was like, yeah, it's probably a good idea for you to come in here pretty regularly, Um, you know, at 48. And I just started thinking about this idea of the different strategies that we have when it comes to the world that we live in. Like, there's things on planet Earth that we can control, and there's things that we can't control. And one of my strategies, just in being vulnerable in front of you, with things that I can't control, is denial. Like, when you think about suffering, when you think about, think about sickness, when you think about death, for me, some of your strategies is go to the doctor as much as you can because you can extend your life more, right? I mean, let's go. Let's find the thing, and let's kill it and get done with it so we can move on. For me, you know, ignorance is bliss. Probably not the best strategy, Right? But we all do this. There's something that we, we, we know, like psychologists know, people that have studied human behavior know about the way that we are. We try to control the world that we live in. But there's one factor that we cannot control, right? It's death. I mean, it is death. The, the uh, um, Ernest Becker, uh, amazing author, died in 1974, but his work has lived on in psychology um, because of his book, Denial of Death where he talks about this idea that it is, it's a, almost a cruel joke that we're the, the, the most majestic creatures on planet Earth. 
You know, we contemplate the future. We contemplate how the cosmos got there. We're the only, you know, creature that does that. But yet, we die like everything else does. We have a short lifespan. And he says all of life is figuring out ways, devices that we can use along the way to deny death. How can we take that off the table even though it's coming? And so the book is The Denial of Death. And he he has three propositions. One that we use, and he says one is the, the religious solution. Uh, which, uh, you know, uh, people say, and even he said, because he wasn't uh, a Christian, said, you know, that's because of technology. We don't go in that direction anymore. There's the, the uh, romantic solution, which is we deify a human being. We say, they're going to be my savior. This is going to be the commingling of souls is going to be the, uh, the lasting impact that I'll leave on this world. I'm going to not worry about death. Everything is worthwhile because I have this someone. But he would say that, hey, no person can be rightly say, no person can be your savior. No relationship can bear the weight of that. So it will get exposed. And then he leans towards the third solution, which is the creative solution, which is leave your impact, leave a legacy, leave a mark on planet earth, whether it's write a song, you know, uh, invent something, uh, cure a disease, you know, leave a legacy. And that's the way that you deny death because it's uncontrollable. And the reality for you and me is we, we create perceptions of control, and some people's lives look like they're out of control, and some people seem like they have a good handle on things. But the reality is, is we don't control much. When it comes to nature, when it comes to the life that we live, and certainly when it comes to death, we don't have control. But we spend a lot of time trying to manipulate and control. Some people think, oh, that's, that's a control person, or that's a control personality. I'm going to go with the flow. But Psychologists say that all of us control in different ways. Even the go-with-the-flow person, the go-with-the-flow strategy is a strategy of control, controlling your perception and controlling your environment. If you don't believe me, and there's a guy, his name is Timothy Carey. Um, he's, he's committed his life to this as a psychologist. It's what he writes about is human beings and the way that we control. He says all of our activity, all of our thinking, imagining, debating, dreaming, Planning, inspecting, scrutinizing, sharing, hallucinating, concentrating, meditating, and so on is all control. Whether subconscious or conscious, all of us through all of life are trying to create an environment that brings us pleasure and avoids pain, that brings us happiness and makes us safe, right? You know, that's why we, we make money, so we can put money in a 401k. It's why we buy houses with roofs on them. We put locks on the doors. We install security systems. We go to the doctor so that we can extend life. Pleasure and safety, happiness, all of those things, we try to manipulate and control. But he goes on to say, he says, when there is a difference between the way that we are experiencing the world and the way that we have specified it want, want, we want it to be, we must do something. In other words, we must act. We can't let there be a variance or a difference between what we want and what we're getting to exist for very long without acting. It seems very simple, doesn't it? But he goes on to say, hey, this is, this is one of the reasons, the primary reasons that we have social problems on planet Earth. He says, because there's eight billion of us wandering around and everybody has this tendency towards control. So what can we not, besides death, what can we not control? Other people that are trying to control things. So we're all bumping around, moving around, and hoping and wanting to to, to get an environment where we can be happy and where we can be safe. But there's idiots out there that can kill people, right? There's people around you. There's a boss that's ahead of you that won't let you advance, no matter how smart you are or good at your job. He's there controlling his environment. He's trying to be happy and trying to be safe. And it's overlapping and and, and impeding on my degree of happiness and my degree of safety. 
I mean, there's people in this room that, if for, for most of us, our misery, we talk about our circumstances being the thing that bring misery. Beth was even saying that. Like, some of us are in a good place right now because the people around us are acting right. But some of us are not in a good place. And there's things that are out of control. And our circumstances, many times, the circumstances that are miserable that we're in are caused by other people. They're people that we cannot, cannot, cannot control. I can't control you. You can't control me. But I need to control things. And then you throw in nature. I mean, you throw in just straight up nature. The fact that sin hasn't just affected human beings, and they don't act right. But nature doesn't act right either, does it? So we live in a world that's completely and utterly out of control. How do we solve this problem? How do we go into this life and, and move in this direction? Well, some people's solution, I just, I, I, I don't know why this popped in my, my mind. It, was, it wasn't really a popular movie. Anybody see Panic Room with Jodie Foster a long time ago? And it's a real thing, like the idea of a panic room. It's, just, it's this movie about this you know, wealthy family in Manhattan. They had a panic room. It was like food in it, technology, and just like you could go there, natural disaster, bad people come in the joint. You go in there, and you're going to be safe for a while. You can actually buy these things, like safe rooms. And there's hundreds and hundreds of them in Manhattan. Wealthy people have them, where you can go and you can be safe. You lock yourself in there, and if natural disaster comes, disease or some airborne thing happens, you can go in there and you can be in there for a while. People pay lots of money to be, isn't that crazy? To be safe. Because what are we doing? We're trying to control. We're trying to avoid the inevitable, which is death. So what I love about this passage, and, and I, I think it's, it's, it's so counterintuitive to the idea of ultimately controlling everything and every aspect of our lives, but it leads us to this place of what it looks like to have, you know, as a Jesus follower and as a Christian, what does our safe room look like? You know, what, what, what would it look like for us to have a safe room? Is there anything that we can do in this life that, that leads us towards joy and leads us towards a place where we can be safe, where something that actually will deal with death besides denial. Is there a safe room for you and me? And it's almost counterintuitive to even say that in the Christian world because what does Jesus say? He says, hey, if you're going to protect your life, if you're going to hold on to your life, what are you going to do? You're going to lose it. But if you're willing to lose your life, you will gain it. So this safe room is going to have to look considerably different. And what I love about this story, it's about a woman that ends up being in the, the Hebrews Hall of Faith. Like she, she didn't just get her name and her story in 2 Kings chapter 4, but it gets popped back up with, with a long list of guys that are considered, hey, if you want to see what faith looks like, if you want to see what it looks like to put all of your hope, all of your stuff, put everything that you have and trust in God, th this is these people. And she was one of these people. And the things that she does in her life and the things surrounding her life lead us to what I call a Jesus-following safe room. So let's pull out your Bible, 2 Kings chapter 4. And this is Elisha. Remember, we've, we've transitioned, like the, the prophet that's moving and working in this part of Kings. We've gone from Elijah, who went up in the chariots of fire last week, and we've got Elisha now. And he's been performing miracles, calling the people home, doing the work of a prophet. And says, one day Elisha went to Shunem. And a well-to-do woman, some of your translations say wealthy, and it says well-to-do in this translation, but um, the, the translation in the Hebrew is, is powerful, um, but it's, it's even more expansive than that. The English language doesn't really get us around that. If you go look at commentary, it has like a long list of words for this woman. She was famous. She had integrity. She, a lot of people in the town knew her. People around, I mean, she, she just had an amazing reputation, um, and she was powerful in every way, but also a really good 
person. Like people were just like, that is, when you think about who you want to be in life and where you want to be in status in life, this was the woman. So just being wealthy doesn't cut it, but that's what we find in the English language. But the Hebrew word, this woman was powerful, well-to-do. She was well-known and well-regarded amongst her people. So there was a a well-to-do woman there who urged him to stay for a meal. So he rolls into town, meets this lady, and so whenever he came by, he stopped by there to eat. So they develop a relationship. And she said to her husband, I know that this man who often comes our way is a holy man of God. Let's make a small room on the roof and put a bed in it and a table, a chair, and a lamp for him. And he can stay there whenever he comes to us. She knew, I want to be close to this guy. I want, I want, he, he is a man of God for, for, for the best reason. She's just like, hey, if there's somebody, I'm powerful, but I know I should be leaning into the things of God. And she's obviously, she's a godly woman that trusts God. And she's like, hey, we want to we wanna open up. Our, we, we're wealthy, but we want to... We want to allow the invasion of our space to add a room. I love that there's, I know people like this. Like, I love this story because sometimes people think God's angry at wealthy people. You should be poor. Like, he's mad that, that people have money. You shouldn't be, have money. That's going to be bad. And no, you see this, you see God leaning towards this, this woman that has resources, has power. And the response that she has is she provides space for people. I know people in this church that do that. I mean, we had somebody recently for a long season had a house available and provided space for a missionary. I know other people in this church, that's a continuous rhythm in their own house. People that are around for ministry and need a place to stay rather than wasting money on a hotel or money that they don't have. You can stay with us for extended periods of time. That's the kind of woman she was like, hey, the things of God, godly man, we want him here. Whenever he's around, we want him in close proximity to us. Verse 11, it says, one day Elisha came. He went up to his room and he lay down there. Wouldn't it be nice? You just got a room. You roll into town. Everybody's got a room for you. He said to his servant Gehazi, he's like the Robin to the Batman, right? Gehazi is. He is uh, Elisha's servant, the guy that's kind of attached to him. He says, call the Shunammite. So he called her and she stood before him. And Elisha said to him, tell her, you have gone to all this trouble for us. Now, what can be done for you? Can we speak on your behalf? to the king or the commander of the army. And she replied, I have a home among my own people. Now, I, I went and looked at the, the, the translation for this too. That she basically was saying, I'm, I'm, I'm all right here. People, I know the king. I know the commander. Like I, I have a relationship with all these people. I'm well regarded here in terms of status, in terms of the, my, my reputation, the things that I need in life. I'm all good. It is well with me. You'll see her say that in some of your translations that all is well, I'm good. And uh, so she replied, I have a home among my own people. So Elisha responds, what can be done for her? And Gehazi said, she has no son and her husband is old. Now, not having a son, I'll just say this, is, was a big, bigger deal than it is in our society. I mean, not having a child and wanting a child is a burdensome thing anywhere in any, any, any time of, of, of history. But in this particular time, it was a big deal. I mean, I'll just say that. It was a, a big deal for them to not have a son, to carry on the name for, the, for legacy purpose, for just for protection and care. I mean, uh, sons were a part of your retirement plan. Um, so, and her husband was old. So that, that made, that she's thinking, hey, I got nobody else. But she didn't say that. She didn't even bring that up. But you'll see why, because it's a sore spot for her. It's a, part, a place that she really didn't want anybody to go or talk about. Then Elisha said, call her. So he called her and stood in the doorway. He says, about this time next year, you will hold a son 
in your arms. Now listen to her response. She says, no, my Lord, she objected. Please, man of God, don't mislead your servant. She's like, please, please don't tease me. Don't, don't give me false hope. Don't tell me I've been waiting and this is something that I've wanted. It's funny, all is well, I don't need anything, I don't need anything, but there is something. Wealthy as she is, there's a place of vulnerability, there's a place of exposure that only happened because she invites this guy in. Nobody would have known about it other than her husband, but she's got a small little community right there in her house, and all of a sudden, what comes up rooted is her desire, and you can tell, even in her language, brokenhearted. Like she has, this is something that she's desired. She's kind of, said, hey, I'm okay with it, but it's still there. The heart, the stone was kind of around the heart, and she can almost feel the stone getting crumbled away and feeling like weepy and going, no, I don't want to hope in this. I don't want to put hope here. Don't tell me that it's going to be okay. Don't tell me that, that God has this because it's been too long and my heart's been too broken. But the woman became pregnant. And the next year, about the same time, she gave birth to his son, just as Elijah had told her. I love that in the proximity and in her, the vulnerable place that, that God moved and a miracle happened. But if any of you know this story, as it continues, this, this kind of routine continues. Elisha comes to visit, stays in his room, and then they have this relationship, and the boy gets a little bit older. And then one day, the boy's out in the field with his father. It's harvest time. It's really hot outside. And he comes running up to his father, stumbling, holding his head, going, my head, my head. And then he collapses. And the father brings the boy into the mother and lays the boy in her lap. And a few moments later, he, he dies. You talk about heartache. You talk about confusion. You talk about frustration. You talk about desperation. And what's interesting is she doesn't, in, in the next day, she doesn't begin the process of burial. She doesn't begin the process of mourning. She doesn't begin the process of, of what she would new, need to do to prepare the body. You know what she does? She takes that body and she goes right upstairs, prophet's room, boom, lays them on the bed there. And she says, husband, guess what? I'm leaving. I'm going to find the prophet. I'm going to Mount Carmel. I don't care how far it is. I don't care where it is. We are going to go fast, get some servants. We are headed there. The husband doesn't go. She goes on her own. We're going to Mount Carmel, and we are going to find Elisha. So in verse 25, it says, So she set out, and she came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. And when, she saw, when he saw her in the distance, the man of God said to his servant Gehazi, Look, there's the Shunammite. Run to meet her and ask her, are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is your child all right? And Gehazi does all these things, obviously, and her response is, everything is all right. In some of your translations, I like this. It says, all is well, which is an interesting response, right? All is well? All's not well. But in, in her heart, it was the way that she responded. Verse 27, she reached the man of God at the mountain, so Gehazi was there, and he, he kept on going, and Elijah came towards her, reached the man of God on the mountain. She took hold of his feet, and Gehazi came and said, pushed, pushed her away. He said, don't, don't grab, I mean, it's Elisha, man, man of God, prophet. But the man of God said, leave her alone. She is in bitter distress. He saw it. But the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me why. I love that it. it's like a surprising thing that he doesn't know because he knows everything, because he's a prophet. 
He's like, I don't know why I didn't know what happened. I usually know. God, why don't I know? You should tell me these things. I don't even know what's going on. All I knew was she was in bitter distress. It's kind of funny. Like, hey, God didn't tell me. And then she says, did I ask you for a son, my Lord? I mean, I love the, the tone that you can almost feel in the passage. Didn't I tell you? Don't raise my hopes. Elisha said to Gehazi, tuck your cloak into your belt. Take my staff in your hand and run. Don't greet anyone you meet. If anyone greets you, don't answer. Lay my staff on the boy's face. But the child's mother said, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So he got up and followed her. So he sends Gehazi ahead and says, you go do, you go, you go do what I'm telling you to do. And she's like, I, I'm pretty positive that's not going to work. So I'm staying with you and you're coming with me. We're bringing the man of God with me. Now, some of you know the way this story ends, but I'm going to leave it here at a cliffhanger because I, 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 there's so many things that we've just covered in Scripture that I want to... I want to talk about, because what are we talking about? What does it look like to, to, to live life and understand that death is coming, but understand that, hey, we, we have a tendency to control things, but how in the world can we have a safe house? How can we have joy? And how is it possible that we can deal with death? How can we control things? How can we, what, what does it look like in the Christian life? Is it possible for us to have some sort of spiritual safe house? So the question today, okay, or the response today is there are four essentials of the Jesus followers safe room. And again, the safe room is different than what we're looking like, you know, in Manhattan. This isn't about insulating your life. Because what does Jesus say? Lose your life, you gain it. You are trying to hold on to your life, you'll lose it. So obviously this safe house looks different. But the first element of the safe room is build the room. Look what she did in verse 10. Let's make a small room on the roof. Put a bed in it, a table, a chair, and a lamp. And then he can stay here whenever he comes. You see, the reality is, is look, for, for, for you and me, we all need God to do things in our lives. But we can't make God move. But we can make room for God to move. You see what she does? She does something, and this is all about, making a room is all about, the first thing we do in the safe house, we got to make the room first. got to build the room. we gotta, we got to put it in place we got to get in proximity. She wanted to be in proximity to the things of God. She wanted to be in proximity of the prophet of God. And that's, that's what God's calling us to do. Now, this isn't a formula by any means to see God move and perform a miracle. Because we can't make God move. But what does Jesus say about the wind? He says, hey, the wind blows. The Spirit's like the wind. The Spirit of God is like the wind. We can't make it blow at any particular time. It goes where it wants. God does what he wants. But what we can control is putting up the sail. Because if we never make any move towards putting myself in the position where when that wind blows, I am available, I am in the position to, to catch that wind, then we'll never catch it. We might be like, Why? What's, going, what's going on with God? Well, have you put, are you in proximity? Have you put yourself in that place? In some ways, building a room might be risk for you. Like it might be stepping out. Like I've never seen God work. I've never seen a miracle. I've never seen God move. Are you in the places? Are you risking? Are you stepping out where, where God can move? I remember I had a, a, a college student that was in my, my ministry. John Walker. I know he listens to these talks. John, I'm talking about you. He was so annoying like to me. He was super religious. And he would get in my face and say, this is what we need to do. We need to study the book of James because people are cussing outside your house right before Bible study. And I'm just mad. And, but he, he loved the Lord. And he used to challenge me. He grabbed me and Danny Strickland and said, hey, we're going to pray 
We're going to go to the church office. We keep talking about evangelism. We talk about God moving. Let's go. We're going to pray for an hour, and then we're going to go to kickbacks, this bar. We're going to order a beer. We're going to sit there, and if somebody comes up, we're going to talk to him about Jesus. That was his plan. And so we went there, we prayed for an hour, and, I'm, I, and I, there was something about me that was excited about it, but also nervous, like, this is what weird Christians do. And so we did it. And I'm not going to go into detail, but this is about putting the sail up and getting into the places where God moves. And we, we went there, and it was awkward. I'm, I'm just going to be honest. It was awkward. I sat there and just didn't even drink my beer, just sat and watched it sweat, just nervous if somebody was going to come sit down. And sure enough, this couple came in, had been uh, celebrating an eighth-year anniversary, happy, and we're like, this is definitely not them. They were talking our ear off and chatting with us and, and being super nice. And I'm telling you, just to fast forward the story, by the end of the, the, the next 20 or 30 minutes, both of them were sitting in the chair crying, not because of anything that we did. All they did is simply enter in and go, hey, what are you guys doing here? And we had to tell them, what do you guys do? Well, th- this guy's in the leadership development program. This guy's on a church staff, and this guy's on a church staff. Well, what's, what's that all about? By the end, they were, they, were, they were giving us their daughter's number. So my daughter's lost. She is broken. She is, can you call her? Can you tell her to come to your deal, your college thing that y'all do? Can you, can you? It was just, we were all, we were just like, what in the world? And it was simple. We got ourselves in proximity. Maybe it's building an actual room. Maybe it's getting, it's, well, where, what's your time and your place with God? Where are you building a room in which you can experience and be with God? I remember before God blew up my life, God blew up my wife's life, and, and, and she had a room, and it used to annoy me. She took the, we, we always wanted a walk-in closet, and then she took it over. She put a picture of Jesus on the wall, some candles and some journals in there. I'm like, you're going to burn this thing down. I want my clothes in there. She would go in there, close the door, and she would meet with God. It was awesome, though. It, life-changing. I feel like in some ways, I'm looking at you now, I'm like, the church wouldn't be here. If she wasn't in that place experiencing God shrinking her down and showing her who she was in comparison to God, but seeing the bigness of God. And then later on in my life, I started to realize, okay, that's a pretty good thing to do. God blew up my life. And I remember, I remember these sweet moments. I, I, I had forgotten about them. I remembered them this week. I would leave lunch. I'd be at work. I would, instead of going to lunch and spending any money, I would pull my car around the back of the office. I had a forerunner. I would back it in and to a retention pond full of algae. wasn't pretty at all. And, and I would just sit there on the back, and I would, there was a book, a, a journal I would go through, and a, a 30-day devotional by John Piper, Life is a Vapor. And I would sit there, and I would have time with God. I would just sit there on the back of my, my forerunner like this, eating my lunch, hanging out, and praying. And, and I'll say this, most of the time, it was kind of, you know, bland. I'd read the thing, oh, that was pretty good. I'm glad I got that in the brain. It's good food for the soul. You know, life is a vapor. You know, I should not waste it on the things I wasted on. That's great. And I would pray and, I'm, you know, sometimes go back there with my guitar and worship. And most of the time, pretty normal. It's good to do that. But every once in a while, I'm telling you, every once in a while, I'd be, in, I'd be back there and I'm telling you, something would happen by the power of God's Spirit. And I'd be in there and I wouldn't want to move. In the middle of the day, in the back of my forerunner, I couldn't believe that the God of the universe was back in my 1999 forerunner, meeting with me, and I knew he was there. And in those moments, beyond the shadow of a doubt, I knew that God existed, and I knew that he loved me, and I knew that he was bigger than I could possibly imagine. And I, I would sit in there almost in fear that it would go away. I was like, I, I, I never want to leave this place. I never want to move from this place or this space. But you got to make a room. You gotta, you gotta make space because if you don't, you'll never get to that place where God shrinks you down in his love to the smallest micron to show you who you are in comparison to all of eternity. 
But then to lean in and say, I love you. And to experience that, there's nothing like it. It will change your life. You gotta make a room. You gotta make space. And maybe it's an actual room. Maybe you need to annoy your spouse and go into the walk-in closet. I don't know. Build a room. Secondly, let the light in. Let the light in. When she built the room, guess what happened? She almost had no choice but to let the light in. People were gonna know her stuff. There's a vulnerability. When we let the light in, there's a, a vulnerability that's, that's required in the kingdom of God. On planet Earth, self-sufficiency is what we put at the top of the mountain. But in the kingdom of God, guess what? Self-sufficiency was the crack in the Garden of Eden that let sin into the world. It was. Self-sufficiency was the crack in the garden that allowed sin to enter into the world. I can do it on my own. I don't need anybody to know. My, I, I, am, I am capable. This woman was capable. She was liked by everybody. Obviously, smart, wealthy, well-to-do, famous, all of the things you would want in life, but vulnerable. But had never shown that vulnerability until she let the light in. She allowed her desperation. She responded and, and was truthful about the fact that she did want a son. Just in her response, don't you tease me. What a vulnerable moment she had right there in this moment. And when you think about, you know, I've already said this, that God's not mad at wealthy people, but he does, you know, he does say, look, it's easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get in the kingdom of God. Is he saying because of the money, because of the wealth? No, it's because of the self-sufficiency. It's because you're not in a place of need and God needs you in a place of need. God needs you in a place of vulnerability and desperation to work. He works in the weakness, not in the strength. That's how he operates. That's what we see all through Scripture. You see, when we repent, like repentance isn't just walking away from sin. I think we, we have good Christians here in our church, in our community. I've walked away from sin. You know, I'm living the good Christian life. But repentance is not just walking away from sin. It's proclaiming, I need you. I need you. I am desperate for you. I need you. It's, it's, it's essential to let the light in and be vulnerable with other people. It's what, what God's calling us to do. The Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians, he, he says he's got this thorn he's been praying for. Three times he's prayed, please remove, thorn in the flesh. Nobody knows what it is. You can go read the commentary. Everybody's got their idea. Please remove this. But he's very confident in trusting God. He says, his grace is sufficient for me. God put this here so I wouldn't be conceited. God put this here because he didn't want me to be self-sufficient. God put this here because he wanted me to be desperate. He wanted me to actually experience his grace and know that it was sufficient and know that I'm insufficient. God puts those things in our place. And I'm telling you, if you think you're sufficient and you're like, hey, I don't need this, I need Jesus vulnerability thing. I got life on lockdown. I've got things figured out. I got my Bible. I do my quiet time. I got my own thing going on. I'm telling you, you live long enough on planet Earth. I don't care how wealthy you are, how rich you are. Things will happen. Your child, you can, your child can get cancer, can't control it. Natural disaster. You could lose your job. You could lose your skills. You could, you could lose a hand or an arm, and maybe that's your, the thing that, that, that employs you. It can come, but how are you going to respond in that moment? Is it going to be leaning away and running away like God, God must not exist, or will it, will, it, will it do what it does for many people, lead you home? in your vulnerability. See, I think, I, I know, because I'm a pastor here, I know that there's people that, that, 
that you're traveling alone, that you've covered your heart and you're dying on the outside. You've got a beautiful family, great stuff is happening. Kids are in church, you're in church. But behind the scenes, there's brokenness and, and things that have never been exposed, never been, no light has ever made it there. And you're dying. Maybe you're in a household and you're like, my husband's not the same guy. He, he was this guy when we got married and now I mean, we're in our 30s and he's going crazy. And it's, it's affecting our kids. It's affecting me. I can't. He, it's oppressive and I am dying inside. But you've not told one person. You've not reached out. You've not leaned towards God but away from God. You've, just, you've sat numb. Don't tell me there's any hope. Don't tell me that, that God can change things. I've been living with this for years. There's hope in that vulnerability. God will work in those moments. But you've got to get into that place of looking up to God going, God, I need you. I need you so desperately. I need you so desperately. We can't control things in our life. Can't make people like us or not like us. Can't make people love us. Bonnie Raitt knows that. I can't make you love me if you won't. But we can control how we put our lives in God's hands. We, we can control how we, how we live our lives. Because trouble's not necessarily the judgment of God. Sometimes it's the mercy of God that's leading us home. You know, uh, Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, in his second inaugural address, I don't know if any of you know this, but they were completely different. People have studied it in history. It's not just religious people that think it's interesting, but... Um, they're so drastically different. And they attribute it to the death of his 11-year-old son, Willie. And when, when his son died, it changed Abraham Lincoln in a way. It broke his heart. It opened his soul. It made him vulnerable. And all of a sudden, what, the birth out of that was not denying God. He was a religious man before. And he says, I was religious before, and now I have a relationship with Jesus. I'm in love with the things of God, and I love God, and I believe that he's sovereign on high, and he's watching over me. And they, you, you read his second inaugural address, and it's all about Jesus. It's all about how Jesus affects politics, how Jesus affects government, why we need to lean towards the widow and the orphan, why we need to give our lives away as Americans. It is incredible. It's the thing that put forth the Emancipation Proclamation. Everybody said it was a bad idea, and he didn't care. He's like, I'm not trying to win any awards here. We're doing what's right in the eyes of God. And that's how we got the Emancipation Proclamation. Out of the death and vulnerability of Abraham Lincoln's son. Freedom for a country and a nation. God used it. It's powerful. Powerful. So thirdly, we've got build a room. Get in proximity. Come on, we got to do that. Next, we got to let the light in as, as people. We got we to gotta be in that place of vulnerability. We got to be in that place of understanding what it looks like to, to open our heart to... God into other people. It's what we do as the Christian church. Or we're just going to be inoculated by church and never really have any effect on the people around us. The third thing is, is we gotta, we gotta get some vibe in the room. You know, I'm an HGTV guy. Anybody watch HGTV? You gotta have vibe, you know? That thing that you just can't put your finger on when you walk in somebody's house, you're like, why is this better than my house? I don't know. It smells right, looks right. The thing, ours is down here, theirs is up here, and it made all the difference. I don't even know why. Vibe, it's a big deal, right? Well, in the Jesus followers safe room, vibe is an important thing. And there's these things that seem like they oppose one another, but in the Jesus following safe room, they fit perfectly. And they are contentment and desperation. 
You see, both contentment and desperation are both in God's design of faith. Being able to say, I'm okay, but I'm not okay. I trust you, but I need you. We see that in this story. She, she says all throughout. If you go back and you read it, the amount of time she says all is well in the midst of disaster is pretty incredible. All is well, but I need you. All is well, but I want you to see that I'm in bitter distress. We see this thing happening on. She was content, but yet she was desperate for the things of God and desperate for him to move. And there's a way for us to be that way, to trust God, to know that he's sovereign, to know that he is controlling everything, but he's trustworthy. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. I love this because it's got both pieces right here. He says, don't be anxious about anything. Trust God. Don't be anxious. We can trust God with our lives. Don't, don't worry. I'm content. The Apostle Paul says that in 2 Corinthians. He says, I'm, I'm content. Yet I'm asking. And that's what it says here. Don't be anxious about anything but what? In every situation, by prayer and petition and with thanksgiving, present your requests before God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When, when things are out of control, the one thing we can control is putting our life in His hands. And then God is responsible at that point for leveraging it for, for His glory. And we can just say, God, this is yours. I'm laying it at your feet. Contentment. But also the desperation. She was in bitter distress. She asked. She came before God. I say this every week. You know, God who loves us. You know, we're, we're good. You know, we're, we're not even good parents. And we love to give good gifts to our kids, he says. How much more will, the, will God give gifts to his children when they ask? We, we should ask. Persistence. I mean, I think for guys, I mean, I... I Guys don't ask for, for anything because we don't want to be in need. Guys don't want to, desperation is not the thing that you want, like manly men. We just had tribe night, and I'll tell you, we had 70 guys come, which is amazing. 70 dudes. So cool to see guys. There's definitely a need. People were wanting to be, I mean, you, know, you do an outdoor event with fire, oysters, and a boil, and guys are like, hey, you know, hall pass, I get to go. Um, they're excited about it. But I, I, this is one, one I, it's the hardest place to find on planet Earth, the FOP Lodge. Like it is, I didn't get one text asking me for directions. Man event, right? They didn't care. I guarantee you people got lost, but nobody was asking. They didn't need anything. We didn't need anything. It was so funny. There was no, uh, women would have driven you crazy. There was no plates. There was no forks. There was no, we didn't, we forgot it all. We didn't have anything. They didn't need it. It was like the boils on the table. We'll just, ah. There was chairs set up. They were kicking the chairs out. We don't need chairs. We don't need, we just fingers, shuck the oyster, throw it in his mouth. It was fine. <laughs> Men don't need anything. But that, that, is, that is an illusion, we are desperate inside. We are dying inside in our society, in our world. Men are lonely. Outside of the Christian world, the studies say, in your 30s, men are desperately lonely, suicidal, in a crowded room because they're talking about sports. They're talking about things that don't matter and not getting to the places of desperation and vulnerability. Say, my marriage is in trouble. I need help. The temptation that's on me to walk, walk away from my marriage is so heavy. What I'm experiencing at work with this person versus what I experienced at home with my wife is, is it's two different things. And I need somebody to call me to account. I need to be vulnerable. I need to be desperate before God and before other people, before the church. I need to say I need the church. I need my brothers and sisters. And I need you, Jesus. But men don't want to do that. 
but it is part of it. Being content, God, I trust you, but also being desperate to say all is well, but I still need you. All is well, but I know that you can raise the dead, so what can you do in my circumstance? We should be able to say those things. All is well, but it's not over. And this is the end of the story, and I love it. Because Gehazi goes on in verse 31, and there's one more fourth thing to this house that we can't take care of, but God can. He went on ahead and laid the staff on the boy's face, but there was no sound or response. And Gehazi went back to meet Elisha and told him, the boy is not awakened. When Elisha reached the house, the boy was lying dead on the couch. And he went in, shut the door. Him and Gehazi were obviously in there, and the two of them prayed to the Lord. And when he got on the bed and lay on the, lay on the when he got when he got on the bed and lay on the then he got on the bed and he lay on the boy. Think about this: mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands, whole face on his face, body on his body. As he stretched himself out on him, the boy's body grew warm. And Elisha turned away and walked back and forth in the room. And then he got on the bed and stretched out on him once more. I mean, this is the craziest scene. I mean, it's just odd, right? It's strange. And then the boy sneezed seven times. If you look that up in the commentary, you know what it means? Nobody knows. I know, I looked. I was trying to find something cool, but nothing there. Even seven times, you're like, I could make something up. But And Elisha summoned Gehazi and said, call the Shunammite woman, because he was alive. And he did. And she came and said, take your son. She came in and fell at his feet and bowed to the ground. And then she took her son and went out. This scene is so amazing. You talk about every, every page, every story whispering the name of Jesus. You've got a man, there's a, there's a dead son, the place of desperation, in the place of weakness, in the place of I can't control it. Death itself, everything that we want to do is deny, deny death because we know that we can't control it. And here we've got Elisha who spreads his whole body out on this boy, nose to nose, mouth to mouth, hands to hands, laying on top of him, every bit of him. I mean, if you were to look down from above, if you were looking down from heaven at this scene, all you would see is Elisha. And it just, it makes me think of of Jesus, who in every way, because we need a covering for the room. We need a covering for the room. And we can't create a covering for ourselves. There's no way for us to do that. There's no way for us to cover the problem of death. It's inevitable for you and me. But then you have Jesus who comes and in every way acquaints himself with who we are, with everything about planet Earth, with being a human being. He spreads his life out over us. For 33 years, he weaves himself in understanding who we are, understanding our temptation, understanding our pain, understanding our loss, understanding our heartache. He gets down to the heart of the matter with the human race, understanding us in every way. He spreads his life out over our death in every way. Hands spread out, life spread out, blood poured out for you and for me. Laying over death, laying over me, covering me with his blood. And if God looks down from heaven at that scene, All he's going to see is Jesus when he's looking at me. 
sonship, his love and his approval, I get it. His inheritance, I get it. Everything, forgiveness of sins, righteousness like the son, I get it. When God looks at me, he sees his son, his beloved son. This is my son. The only reason that happened is because Jesus traded places with me. He covered me. He covered my safe room. Safe from death. The only thing that can save you from death and bring you back to life is Jesus Christ. And I don't know where you are today or what's going on in your life today or where, where you've come from, but everything in me knows this is true. There's nothing on, there's no safe house on planet earth outside of Jesus. There's no place you can put your life and have any guarantees other than with Jesus. Let's stand. God, we love you. We love who you are, what you're doing in our life. We love what you've put on display in your word. It's like you, you rattle our cage every week and every day with the simplicity of trust, getting close to you, knowing that our weakness is not our problem, that it's actually the thing that will lead us home, and that you're always covering us, and you'll never give up.